Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. In his latest book, Stuart Ward offers a panoramic history of the end of Britain as a global nation. Untied Kingdom explores the ways in which Britishness has been imagined, experienced, and ultimately discarded as the British Empire unraveled and the four nations of the UK drew steadily apart. Save 20% on the price of your copy with the discount code UK20 at cambridge.org forward slash untied kingdom. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. I've been hither and thither in Ireland at book festivals and it has made me want to have a very stern word with some UK literary festivals because I went to the Leeds Festival in Leash, in Port Leash, on Friday evening of last week, and I interviewed Anne Enright and Angela Flannery. How many times, can I say, have you interviewed Anne Enright this year? <laughs> Are you best buddies? I know. She'll probably get a sort of restriction on me <laughs> at some point, won't she? Yes, it's true. But, you know, I follow her around asking her impertinent questions about her wonderful book, The Wren, The Wren. It's absolutely true. Then the very next day, I went to Dublin Castle to the Dublin Book Festival and I interviewed Terry Hayes. But on both occasions, I was given thoroughly excellent goodie bags, including from Leash, a box full of produce from Leash makers. Things like hemp flour and marmalade and chocolates. And tea bags and things. I mean, this is what we need. Come on. Come on, everybody. Up your game. Yep. Yep. Up your game. Goodie bags, please, for everyone. Tremendously nice. So that's what I've been doing. What about you? Um, I've been, you know, hiding from the terrible storms and um, doing a bit of reading. You know how it is. (laughs) Reading that I don't have to do. There's always different sorts of reading. Reading for work, which is fascinating but there's also reading that you just do because you've looked at something or found something I've been meaning to read it for ages I read The Goshawk by T.H. White ah have you read it I have but I may have read it in the same context that you did am I correct well I I haven't read Helen MacDonald's H's for Hawk I've just read the T.H. White ah well that was that was the context in which I read read the T.H. yeah because it was sort of rediscovered wasn't it when they wrote H's for Hawk I haven't read H's for Hawk but I read I read the Goshawk but then I read another book by Helen MacDonald perversely I mean that is quite perverse really I know but I don't I just done quite a lot of Hawks <laughs> and falconry and I love T.H. White, though. I mean, I know that he's he's a very odd figure, but I love his writing. I love The Once and Future King. And I was so pleased with The Goshawk. I thought I'd like to, I'd move on to something else. And then but then Helen MacDonald and Sin Blaché have written a a sort of speculative fantasy ish sci fi ish book called Prophet, which is completely, utterly unlike anything about, you know, training Falcons in the 1930s. And I thought it was brilliant, actually. Really, really, really good. What's the deal with it? What's the premise? It's quite complicated. There's a sort of, there's someone who can tell the truth about things. And there's a company which is developing a substance in which one's, your nostalgic feelings or memories can become 
are made real. You can make objects, real objects. You realise your memories, in other words. Yes. And this does not mm. always go well, can I say. It goes down some dark alleyways, but there's a very, very good central relationship between the people investigating it, uh, one of whom is a, is a is military, basically American military, and the other one who is this person who can detect truth. It's very, very good, very exciting. Well, I shall shortly, I hope, be meeting them at another festival where they are appearing, Sind Lachey and Helen MacDonald, on the debut writers, not debut writers, debut novelists panel. It would be wild if Helen MacDonald was on a debut writers panel, wouldn't mm. it? Yeah, uh, it I'm was. not chairing it, but I shall I shall pass on your enormous enthusiasm. I thought, yeah, it was it was great. Yeah. And in the spirit of sort of new dystopian kind of visions, I will next week be interviewing Naomi Alderman at South Bank Set and with her book, ah. The Future. So I will, but, you know, as you know, you are better at reading these these kind of slightly speculative sci-fi things now. Listeners, I must tell you that before we started this podcast, when we were doing our chit-chat microphone testing, Lizzie had to explain to me what Super Mario Kart was. <laughs> And in a sort of byway of this conversation, <laughs> I said, is it a bit like a cryptic crossword? And and she had to sort of, she had to say it wasn't really, but she did it in a very kind, humouring granny way. It was nice. It was nice of her. <laughs> now, I should we should... get on, do you think? <laughs> yes, just to say, I think you should try Mario Kart. You should try it, Alex, and everybody should. It's It's very good fun. Possibly even more fun if you can't drive, which I can't. Anyway, yes, do oh. let's get on. What's going on this week? Alex? Let's get on before I reveal more of my terrible lacunae in my life experiences. It's the most wonderful time of the year, or the most wonderful books of the year, as TLS contributors round up their favourites of the last 12 months. And TLS history editor David Horsfall will be telling us all about his new sporting survey, More Than a Game. But first, what do Mary Beard, Paul Muldoon, Tom Stoppard and Andrew Motion all have in common? They, along with numerous other TLS contributors, have turned away from writing their own books to recommend their favourites by other people. The creme de la creme of 2023, brought together over nine pages in this week's issue. Compiler par excellence David Horsfall is with us to discuss the list, as well as podcast regular fiction editor Toby Lichtig. Greetings, merry gentlemen. Hello. Is that a bit too Christmassy? Yes, probably. <laughs> it being mid-November. Sorry, I don't want to be sorry. A sorry, I've forgotten. You're the podcast Grinch, and I'm—I don't know what I usually am, but I've You're gone wild. Gone. What I'm the little Christmas elf this year. Now. The thing is, David, what I want to know in a kind of nuts and bolts way is how much of a nightmare this is to do every year, persuading all these people to send you their recommendations. I like to give the impression to my colleagues that it's almost unbearably hard and one of the great slogs of anyone's working life. But since not that long ago, they invented this thing called email. And it did get a lot easier after that because I do just put together an email and send it to about 100 contributors and ask them to give me their thoughts. And about half of them or a bit more oblige. And after that, there's a bit of reading and checking and so on to do and hoping that the really well-known names won't forget me. But actually, it's not really that hard. It's quite a pleasure. Um, there's just quite a lot of it. What would happen if everybody replied? Well, that's like a party where everybody turns up, isn't it? Exactly. Fire regulations might have to be invoked. Or, um, I'm not quite sure. Maybe we'd have two consecutive issues and really try our readers' patience a bit. But I certainly wouldn't want to resort to actually saying, I'm sorry, Although I asked you to contribute something, I'm not going to run it because we've got so many. And I haven't had to resort to that. Uh, Martin Ivins, the editor, is very generous with making space for it. And we all believe that it's something that our readers enjoy reading. I hope they do. 
Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask a slightly leading and also a bit of a mean question, but that's because I have inside information. What happens if somebody files late, David? Oh, my goodness. Lucy, <laughs> that is treachery. Really Do you know is. what? Like, until you reacted like that, Alex, I had completely forgotten. <laughs> so perfect was your contribution in terms of length, smoothness and brilliance of choice. I had rather forgotten that it was, in fact, a day or two late. A day, um, a day, not two, I a need day. a bit of wiggle room. You'll be unsurprised <laughs> to learn. For I am used to dealing with those literary and academic types. But just occasionally some people do forget and they're very forlorn because I don't chase them up in, in exactly the same way that you don't really start ringing people up and saying, are you coming to my birthday party? If they haven't sent you a reply, you just think, well, maybe they aren't available. Um, and in the same kind of way, I don't kind of badger people. It's not like having commissioned a review from someone and they owe me something. It's a, an invitation which people either take up or they don't. And some turn up just as the door is closing. Fashionably late. Of course, I've now realised this is this is my kind of listeners. This is my kind of nightmare. I've now realised I've told David that I was merely a day late for him, whereas I've been incredibly late for Toby recently. <clears throat> oh dear! This is just awful. Lucy, can you take over? I'm going to go and sit in yes. the shed at the end of the yeah, garden. Yeah, you you go and cover your head with a handkerchief, and we'll mm. talk about books of the year. I believe we even had a long phone conversation in which. Uh, it was the Toothies promised maybe the day after or a couple of days after that. Yeah, something then, like that. Anyway. anyway, it was all fine and the piece was wonderful and and, and uh, our listeners and readers will be able to see it in a future edition of the yes. TLS from Hilary Mantel. So there we oh, go. yes, yeah. because we talked about it and we and we had an extract from the evening and I'm, I'm sure the piece will more than live up to... Um, to I'm feeling promise. a quite urgent need to move the conversation along Yes, now. I feel bad that <laughs> to, I started this. To what is, actually, what is actually in these amazing selections, because there are incredible contributors, wonderful contributors. I mentioned some of them in the, in the introduction there. But you always try to look at trends, and we often talk about that when we have our, our summer books and at this time of the year too. But there's a very wide spread of, of things do crop up again and again, but there are lots of unexpected recommendations here. I thought lots of books I haven't heard of is what I'm trying to say. There is, I would say, it is not a competition, but there is probably a winner, <laughs> Peter Brown, because he's cited three times and he's cited very, very breathlessly. I mean, you know, very persuasively, particularly by Richard Davenport Hines, who says, the most exciting book that I have read this century, you know, we are in 2023, we're a quarter of the way through, is Journeys of the Mind by Peter Brown. Um, and we gave it a very good review, didn't we, David? Um, I think Mary, Mary Beard. Yes, Mary Beard uh, reviewed yes. it. And, and another colleague of ours, uh, consultant editor, Robert Irwin, great expert on the Middle East, also calls it a, at 714 pages, a great book in both senses of the word. So yes, Peter Brown's memoirs, uh, journeys of the mind, might not um, seem at first blush to be the most exciting prospect in that he has lived a life of the mind, Peter Brown. Uh, he hasn't sort of climbed any mountains or anything like that. But I did read at least the introduction of this book before I sent it out to Mary. And it is brilliantly written as all, all, all his history has been. So I can see why people have, um, have chosen it. It was clearly one that we should all read. There's a couple of others who come up on. I think Seamus Heaney's letters come up a couple of times. Is that right? Yes, they're pretty popular. Patricia Craig chooses them. And I think that uh, Paul Muldoon also chooses them. Yeah, Seamus well. Perry, I think, as well. Seamus oh, Perry. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Maybe so not he's... Paul Muldoon. I, I take it back. Paul Muldoon is one of at least two people who choose Anne Enright's most recent novel, The Wren, The Wren, yes. which I know is very popular on the podcast. Extreme, extremely so. Yeah, once a week we have a little, we, we do a little conversation somewhere. And I was delighted to see it there. And it is brilliant. Yeah, it, it is. But also some books that you think, well, that sounds interesting. I was Paul Collier on Serge Mikhailov's 
Revoir Iglutic. Am I saying that correctly? I don't entirely know. But I thought, well, what is that book? I haven't heard of that book. And he, it just sounds fascinating. Yes. Um, th this is, uh, we should probably explain one of the things about our selection, which I hope sort of slightly sets it apart from other selections of this type in the British press, is that when we invite people to contribute, I um, say they can choose a book in any language, and most people choose a book in English, but quite a few do try other ones. We did used to call it International Books of the Year in a very sort of grand way, but then people thought they had to, Clive James was famous for this, would choose sort of one book in Japanese, another in Italian, and three in German. <laughs> Frederick yeah. Raphael, he's also famous for choosing, but you know, the polyglot. He, he yes, you know, absolutely. Actually, quite, quite disappointingly, all in English translation, it seems to be this, this time around. Although it is a very erudite selection, as one might expect. Frederick Raphael um, and has in common with Alex Clark chooses Laura Cummings' mm. yes. Thunderclap. Yes, I loved it. And, and I think you do too, don't you, David? I do. I, I'm in the slightly opposition of not being able to talk about my loves of non-fiction too strongly as I sit on a non-fiction prize committee which has not yet. I see you're recusing yourself from this yes I understand. I will admit to having greatly enjoyed Laura Cummings Thunderclap which is about well the thunderclap in question is the explosion in Delft that among many other people killed the great Dutch Golden Age artist Carol Fabricius. Um, and it is a tremendous book, isn't it? Um, I think I'm just going to admit it. <laughs> it really is. And I, I enormously recommend it to listeners. And as we know, a book with pictures is also a marvellous thing. It's a beautifully produced book, absolutely. And um, they are just fabulous uh, reproductions of some of his paintings and some of her father's paintings as well. Are in it and make wonderful contrasts actually with the with the Dutch art in it. Art loomed quite large. I mean, Mary Beard. I I liked her entry because she said she was just not going to do books. She was only going to do exhibition catalogues and chose the Lavinia Fontana uh, catalogue, didn't she? And uh, Olivia Lang talked about Jeremy Della. Plenty of art cropped up in this in this list. Yes, absolutely. I think Mary likes to choose art because it's um, it's quite politic of her being in her position in the, in the classics world. I think she doesn't like the idea of one classicist being peeved that they've been passed over because I suppose people would like to put her name on the back of their books. Whereas if she chooses a catalogue and she's a great visitor of exhibitions all across the world um, these days, it rather avoids that. So I know she she calls it in this contribution, she calls it my tradition of focusing on one Cinderella of publishing, exhibition catalogs. <laughs> mm. So that's a, a rather nice way of doing that. And she chooses um, a very good uh, sounding one there, yeah. Well, we had Norma Clark um, talking to us about the Lavinia Fontana exhibition and she just she just said everybody has to go to it it was in Bologna was it in Bologna is that right no it was in Dublin it may why, also be in why Bologna, do I think I it was, oh she was, was talking to us from Bologna she was that right? that's right yes, that's, that's right. right it was in Dublin of course sorry yeah yeah but she said everyone has to rush over to Dublin uh, and see it and she um yeah she 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 thought it was wonderful yeah, she she was talking to us from a castle in Bologna. She won the prize this year for for most glamorous uh, location. Yes, she did really, and we do, we do we do have some some beautifully far flung uh, correspondence sometimes, don't we? It's it's rarely us, Lucy. Let's be honest. <laughs> no, it's rarely Toby. Us. I wonder if I could ask you what struck you with your fiction editor hat on as the novels that people were choosing. Well, if if I may be so bold, I was very interested by your choice, Alex Clark, because you read a lot of novels, <laughs> you interview a lot of novelists, and you've gone for Catherine Lacey's biography of X. Yes, I loved it. I mean, we're here. We are in art. Yeah, well. exactly. Yes. So it's another it's another book partly about art, isn't it? And we gave it a very positive review in the paper. But I was I, I was very interested. Is this, you know, is this your novel of the year then? Do you think this is the book that should have, you know, that should be winning the booker? I was surprised. It did I think it is really good, and I was surprised it has as yet not had uh 
more nods from various prize committees, but maybe it will. Maybe it will. I mean, it was well reviewed, wasn't it? But it doesn't. It was very well reviewed. Yeah. I mean, I am a sucker for those, you know, biographies in fiction. Those sort of slightly, um, you know, I am writing a. Re- is this a novel or is it a biography? I am writing about a person as if they were a real person. It's probably a word for that. It is all. It's auto fiction, maybe. Well, yeah. There's fictional biography and auto fiction, and you know, people have spent years deciding what the difference is between the two without ever coming up with it but yes I love those things and I love that idea of creating the artifice of a sort of public reputation in fiction and it did that and it did that other really interesting thing that you see happen in novels but it was kind of braided in so brilliantly this this sort of alternative history in this case of the United States where it just imagines an entirely different outcome as it was an entirely different long tail of the civil war and different forms of secession uh, and a book that did that that I really really enjoyed was Hanya Yanakahara's To Paradise uh, and this seemed in that sort of that traditional I think to do both of those in one novel was kind of amazing so I loved it however one of my delighted spots on this list and Lucy will remember I went I made her go away and read it was Francis Wilson choosing um, Helen de Witt's The English yes. Understanding. Yes. Yes. Which, which I've highlighted in my list as well, because it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I read it over the summer. I mean, so it's, a, it's a tiny little book. It's about 70 pages long. Sorry. Long-term listeners will know this. David, have you read it? I have not read that one. I was just um, thinking about alternative histories, or alternative American histories in particular uh, that uh, Paul Binding chooses Francis Bufford's Cahokia Jazz, yes. which I believe is also an alternative American history uh, with a kind of um, the Native Americans actually having kind of uh, survived the incursions and, and, and thrived in a way that you know certainly did not happen. I'm a great fan of Spufford and, and will be trying that one. And I can't remember, somebody chose Zadie Smith's book. Did they? anyone remember who that was? Or did they not? If I, I thought it didn't come up, and I was quite interested to see that it hadn't come up. Yeah, I'm not sure well, they, they did. <laughs> 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 would, would that be your fictive? They were probably all persuaded not to by um, the very tough review we had of it. Firm but fair. Firm but, well, I mean, fair, absolutely. Uh, but I thought overly firm from my point of view in that I greatly enjoyed it and thought you know it's about the Tichborne claimant the great Victorian cause celebre and I thought it this is the fraud by the way this novel for listeners. yes the fraud I'm sorry that's the title it really tried something new in um, the way it was approaching historical fiction which I thought was pretty interesting and daring considering this was Zadie Smith's first historical fiction but not surprising from her because she's a very kind of confident writer in in everything she takes up and she does tend to do new and different things every time. Claire Loudon wasn't so persuaded. We talked about some podcasts before haven't we Alex and Lisa? I I did enjoy it. I thought Claire was possibly a little bit harsh in it but I I did I did basically agree with her criticisms but I I'm also a big fan of I'm a big fan of Zegas Smith generally but I thought her previous novel Swing Time was was brilliant and Claire also sort of slightly lays into that in her review and said she revised her opinion so I wouldn't want to not recommend The Fraud to, to listeners as well because I, I do think you know I, I do think it's excellent. That's a brilliant TLS double negative there. <laughs> Imagine if you are a person who has picked and is also picked those people exist on this list don't they? Yes they do. For example, in the form of Claire Carlyle, yes. who selected herself um, Elif Batuman's Either Or, uh, which I enormously enjoyed too, and then was selected by Claire Harmon uh, for her book um, about George Eliot, The Marriage Question, which I think we talked about on the podcast, didn't we, Lucy? We did, we did. And I loved, um, I loved Claire Carlyle's opener, she says, I'm beginning to think humour is the most appropriate medium for philosophy. Laughter has a nose for truth. And then, very um, disarmingly, she says, as a chronically unfunny writer, that's bad news. But as a reader, it's a treat to be provoked into serious thought and entertained. I bet she's not as unfunny as that if she can, you know, if she appreciates it so much. I haven't read her book, but it, it did sound really interesting and got very well reviewed, the, the marriage question. Was there someone else? I yes, think Mark Ford, a picker and a picked. 
Yes, that's right. Andrew yeah. Motion. None other than Andrew Motion picked uh, Mark Ford's book about Thomas Hardy and his wife, which we also talked about on the podcast Woman Much Missed, doing very well there too. I'm going to now go to the sort of, can we call it the kind of grubby side of these things? And ask David, who, when he sends his emails out, is gently stern. Can I put it like that, David? About your sort of gentle instructions to people, not essentially to send in a recommendation by their best friend or their wife, for example. I I, I think I do use the phrase, um, ideally, not by a friend or relative. Um, And um, it has proved necessary to say such a thing and you can understand it in some ways that we probably do review or sorry or read books by our friends and are well disposed to them and just because they happen to be by our friends why shouldn't we tell other people how marvelous they are we're not reviewing them so but then one thinks but people do rely on these selections and I think um, I'm uh, hesitate to bring it up again because I think I have mentioned this before many years ago, but um, the uh, ever disarming A.M. Wilson did once praise a translation to the sky and then say, the fact that it is by my daughter is <laughs> entirely beside the point. Nothing to do with it. <laughs> no, and, and I'm sure he was right. I'm sure it was yes. tremendous. Of course, we've all got private eye for this, haven't they? They absolutely yeah. love this. They spend their, because, you know, everyone does their books the year roundups and, and they're, they're eagle-eyed for, for any sense of what they call log rolling. Often quite unfairly, I think. They sometimes, you know, if anyone has temerity to pick a, a, a book by the same same publisher that publishes them, for example, you think, well, that shouldn't necessarily rule them out. But Yes, I've never understood that idea. Um, if you write a book, you don't get a call from the publisher saying, you're one of us now. You must only read and recommend books by people we publish. It doesn't really, it doesn't happen. I don't know what sort of fantasy is is being constructed there, as if everybody who works for a publisher sort of works in the same factory, on the same floor, sort of writing away and holding their pages up to be published. It's a bit strange, that. Yeah. It is a bit, yeah. Off the cuff, do we have a book of the year of our own? I don't mean all of us collectively, because that would take a long time. I was going to ask you individually. We know what Alex's are because yes, I can't. I, yeah. I, I mean, I could, I'm sure, have suggested lots of lots of others that I enormously enjoyed this year, and certainly, and Enright's was one of them. I mention her again, but uh, no, I've given my my selections, and so guys, over to you. It's mostly been fiction and translation for me this year, but I think the, the book, partly because I'd never heard of her, although I probably should have done, the book that really struck me this year uh, was The Forbidden Notebook by the uh, Cuban-Italian novelist Alva de Cespedes, who died quite a few years ago. It was published in the early 50s, and it's, uh, I can't remember whether I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but it came out earlier this year in, in its first translation since the early 50s. And um, it's this, fictional journal of this housewife quite Ferrante-esque Elena Ferrante-esque which is unsurprising because it turns out that Ferrante absolutely loves Alberti Cespedes and it's about her difficulties with not only finding a room of one's own but even a drawer of one's own in which to hide this notebook and it's the first time she sort of opened up to herself about the difficulties of, of her life and her frustrations and her difficult husband and her ungrateful teenage children and it's very 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 brilliantly done and I would recommend it to everybody and I'm hoping it's going to spark a little revival in this author I think another one of her books is being translated next year or the year after I'm going to ask you to give us that title and author again just so we will essentially just so I may write it down Alba di, I hope I'm doing the pronunciation, although she was Italian, the, the name is a sort of a Hispanic name, Cuban. So Alba di Cespedes, C-E-S-P-E-D-E-S, and it's called The Forbidden Notebook. And it's wonderful. Thank you very much. I don't want to, you know, to hog the airwaves, but um, I, I also like Jenny Effenbeck's Kairos, um, which came out in Germany two or three years ago and was translated this year. Um, it's set in the 80s and it's about a a doomed and, and quite unpleasant love affair between a, a much older music uh, academic and journalist and uh, a young a young woman and it sort of plays out against the 
the falling of the wall it's very 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 well written it's really good isn't it I've I've read it too and it was so interesting on the nature of a life lived under surveillance yeah exactly it was absolutely brilliantly done and also he he himself this abusive man is also you know the the surveillance plays into their relationship and that's Mm. very very well the interplay of the personal and political and then just very very quickly i'm I'm reading through the book list at the moment i've just finished the beasting um have you read the beasting anyone else alex yes yes Yes, i loved it it's it's brilliant it's it's really fantastic it's it's very long and i did i did worry about on about sort of page 350 400 whether it was going to sag a bit but actually it comes together beautifully it's so the structure is so brilliant i mean it's very very self-consciously sort of perfectly structured um, but it all comes to a, a wonderful head you know after about 750 pages it's it's very very well observed it's pretty funny as well and it's I mean I wouldn't want to pick it as my book a winner because I think there are some actually some other very good books in that list but it it does have the tang of book a winner to me yes I agree and we will see in a couple of weeks time we whether Yes. Whether he wins it, whether another man called Paul wins yes, it. Yes, there are three Pauls. <laughs> the shock of, of a I mean, non-Paul it... <laughs> winner sends the book he's spinning. David, what about you? Well, I have to you know, remind you of my proviso about yes, just about indeed. every non-fiction mm. book I've read. This, yeah, but um, having said that, I think I'm going to break it entirely because um, one might as well. I was quite surprised, put it this way. I don't think I saw among our selections, Julian Jackson's book, The Trial of Marshall Pétain, which um, Julian Jackson was the great biographer of Charles de Gaulle. And um, in a way, this book is a sort of sequel to that. Pétain, the Vichy leader, was tried shortly after the end of the war. And unsurprisingly, it was a kind of crucible of debate about the French role during the occupation and during Vichy and so on. And he takes the story right up to the present day and ends, he attends the anniversary of the death of Pétain on the island where he's buried off the coast of Northern France. And there are about seven old stages, not uh, contemporaries at all of Pétain, they didn't sort of overlap with him, but they're still kind of carrying the torch for but other than that his his aura has begun to kind of seep away at last but uh, that's a fascinating and brilliantly uh, evoked tale Um, so I did enjoy that very much and one of the most impressive history books I think it's sort of almost factual to say this rather than a, a sort of judgment is Christopher Clark's Revolutionary Spring about the uh, revolutions of 1848, which is almost global. It's certainly European in its scope. It's enormous and um, quite extraordinarily kind of confident, reviewing, reimagination, reexamination of that huge tumult that happened across Europe and into the wider world with the, into kind of, colonies uh, and so on and it's it is an extraordinary achievement really um and i happened to as well as reading it i got it uh, as a uh, audio book and it's read by the author who seems to be able to pronounce perfectly all of the languages that he quotes including german french hungarian serbian czech and at one point he makes a comparison in a kind of epigraph with uh, the uh, Arab Spring and talks about Tahrir Square and quotes in the book um, the uh, first verse of an Arab uh, Egyptian pop song, which if you listen to the audiobook, I highly recommend, you can hear Christopher Clark sing the first verse of this <laughs> pop song in Arabic. I think really is, uh, uh, certainly was a first for me to hear someone that, who was confident in all these spheres. So that certainly was was incredibly impressive. 
Thank you. And and that's a, a good note about audiobooks. More singing in audiobooks, please. <laughs> Lucy, I'm going to finally, I'm going to ask you what your book of the year is and why it's by Terry Pratchett. <laughs> oh, no, it absolutely isn't. No, do you know what? While you were talking, I was thinking, I've been thinking about this, but I haven't been thinking at all about what my book of the year is. I was just thinking about what everybody else was saying. So it's too soon to tell. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. you, you're going to allow the, the final six weeks of the year possibly yeah. To, yeah. to continue your deliberations. <laughs> we'll let it ma- marinate. Perhaps we may I suggest something to Lucy, uh, which mm. is that Keith Miller, um, he delivered his um, selection very early and it begins, uh, or did begin, I won't be the only person here to honk aloud her rhyme, praise of Wish I Was Here by M. John Harrison. Um, and then I realised as I got every contribution in that he is the only he person. He is the so only removed, person, yeah. Yes, I removed that, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion that Lucy Dallas would greatly enjoy the latest M. John Harrison if she hasn't already read it, because it's just the sort of right up your street, speculative fiction, that sort of stuff. Yes, Brilliant. agreed. Okay. agreed. Maybe that's it then. Thank and you. And I, I also, <laughs> I was delighted that Keith Miller also included Mick Heron. Because yes, he got two it, mentions, didn't he? I think Sam Leaf liked Mick Heron as well. He was I love kind of Mick the... Heron myself. And I must say, uh, he was one of the writers on the, this sort of huge aggregated list who I'd heard of. So it was particularly good for me. <laughs> <laughs> but much, I mean, as ever, the podcast and the TLS in general doing even more damage to my bank balance and I think I'm going to have to go and buy Journeys of the Mind by Peter Brown because that is we are going to have to say it is our winner <laughs> the winner yes. of the non-competition yes the yeah, winner we, of the we don't have a winner but if we did um thank you so much David you are now released from this onerous chore that at least you 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 certainly play up its onerousness to your colleagues you have you have revealed today for another 10 months 11 months well, no, I start preparing now, Alex. Obviously. Of course you do. What am I thinking it's, of? It's very much like, um, you know, the fourth bridge or uh, polishing the windows of the Empire State Building. I just come around the other side and start again. Toby and David, thank you so much for joining us to talk through the, the TLS's Books of the Year. We're going to allow Toby to leave now. Goodbye, um, thank you. And thank you very, thank very you. much. But we're going to keep David on, aren't we? Uh, so are. I'm told. Thank you very much for keeping me. David's going to keep going you on. Stay with <laughs> us, but first of all, um, we'll we'll allow him a breather for a second or two, and then we'll come back and talk about what will no doubt be in the list of next year's books of the year. Uh, but until then, we say thank you very much to Toby, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Still to come on the show, David Horsepool explains the critical part that sport has played in the British consciousness. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, do you ever think about the place that sport has in our lives, even if we think we're not that interested in it? How it's always news and often headline news and whether this is a peculiarly British thing or how does it work in Britain? Well, David Horsbull, who is the history and sport editor at the TLS, has thought about all of these things and more, and he talks about them in his new book, More Than a Game, a history of how sport made Britain. He rejoins us now again to talk us through it all. David, welcome back. Hello. Let's talk about your book this time. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for um, asking me about it. Not at all. We're delighted to have you. I was really struck by a thing that you say in your introduction. Because it seems to me, it is, of course, a book about sport, but it's actually about sport and sort of the whole of British life. There's one thing you say where you say what emerges is the way that sport has infiltrated every part of British life from top to bottom. And so you think it also incorporates class and race and gender and politics, almost every area. Is that right? Yeah, I I, I do think that. And there there have been books about sport before and they've kind of touched on some of these things but I I found it interesting to think how particular sports could be shown to throw light on particular aspects of our historical experience Um, and that sort of feedback would happen between the sport throwing light on uh, the subject and the subject throwing its light back on the sport and, and that kind of endless loop going on. Mm. Well, because it, it's such, I mean, it's such a huge subject, but, and so you haven't done it chronologically. As you say, you've done it by game. So cricket, rugby, yes. cycling, different chapters. Why did you do it that way? Is that, was that, was it because you found that each sport has got this particular sort of slant on it, as it were? Yes, I think that's, that's really what I thought. Also, I wanted to avoid saying the same thing over and over again, because to some extent, a lot of the way sports have emerged in Britain have similar kind of stories. There's very often a story of the clash between or a debate about amateur and professional. There's the story of the uh, origins in public schools and sometimes how that dovetails or not with the more popular origins of of a sport. So you can end up sort of, if you Uh, tell the story of each sport in turn you can end up rather easily repeating yourself I think Um, and I was interested to try and take a thematic approach and to some extent to kind of place uh, sports with a kind of earlier or longer history uh, at the beginning and, and get a bit more modern so you know cycling comes rather later than horse racing for example in my scheme Mm, and mm. where does football come, David? Because this is the sport that you, I imagine, had to research the least. Is that is that a fair guess? Well, uh, it might be, sort of, uh, but there's a lot to research with football. I did feel football kind of looming over me a bit. I had a little debate with my publishers about, the, even about the cover. There's a lovely picture on the cover of some boys playing football in I think the 1950s in a playground and they had selected an equally affecting picture for the back of a a little boy kicking his football kind of towards the camera um, which worked really well Um, but I thought I was worried that it would look too much like a book about football and football does overshadow every other sport in this country so I managed to negotiate a similar kind of themed picture but of boys and girls playing cricket in the streets, which is also part of what I was trying to to do in my book, which is to make sure that uh, women play quite a big role in the stories I tell. The kind of female experience of sport is the particular focus of one one chapter as well. But football did, yes, it did. um, It loomed large and it came right at the end because I, or nearly at the end, because I, I was almost trying to avoid this up to then, I have to admit. Can I just point out here with some insider knowledge for all our listeners that there's two fervent Arsenal fans talking <laughs> here. It's just, yes, just so that people are clear about what's going on. Well, it's just, you know, yes, I know that David, you know, is, is I know that that's what he's keen on and spends well, shall we say, some of his life thinking about. Yes, guilty but, as you charged. Know, 
clearly it is a sport that tells us so much. I mean, thinking, you know, just in football in its it's sort of the incarnation of the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, so obviously connected to workplaces, for example. So many teams that we recognise now and their names indeed coming out of the workplaces uh, that, that where the teams emanated from. And obviously it now tells us something about culture wars, corporatization, big business. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the game that keeps on giving in terms of the way it illuminates the rest of life, isn't it? Absolutely. And I focus in particular on what I call the world of the fan, the world the fans made, which has these sort of tentacles that spread everywhere. And I sort of locate that a little bit earlier than I think quite a lot of people who look at this do, um, because it, it, it tends to get put quite late, the whole kind of fan uh, takeover of popular life into the kind of 60s and 70s and then with the troubles that come with that. But actually, most of the things that you can identify, which are sort of unique about football supporting that tend to be put then, you can actually trace back much earlier mm, on mm. into the kind of 20s and 30s, including, unfortunately, hooliganism and particularly the kind of particular types of hooliganism, things like people uh, wrecking trains uh, and having fights at stations, things like that. These sort of things did happen very early on in the game. And I trace various kind of examples of it. And uh, for non-Arsenal supporting potential readers, I'd like to make it clear that I don't only write about Arsenal. Arsenal is mentioned, but, but not focusing on too much. It's very fair. <laughs> One of the absolute the nuggets that I loved in it, I haven't got the book to hand now, but you will remember it, is that Elgar wrote a song for Wolverhampton Wanderers called something like I banged the leather at the goal. Yes, he, he banged the leather like from the it. goal. Uh, no, they didn't take That's it up. So I have my younger son to thank for that information. I knew all about... Norwich City still sing a song that they took up around about their origins in the, the mid 19th, late 19th century. And they still have their song. But yes, Aston Villa, although Elgar was a keen Aston Villa fan and, and did uh, attempt to get people to sing, he banged the leather for the goal. It, it, didn't, it didn't take <laughs> off. Um, it's, just, yes. it's, it's a very good title. And, you know, it just it goes to show you that, that it is the world created by the fan. You know, talk about El pearls Elgar. before swine, really. <laughs> Poor Edward Elgar. They decided, I'm sure he was fine. I was completely also fascinated by you saying about the antecedents of it, because there's a there's a chapter where you sort of talk about the beginnings of a lot of it. And it seems obvious when you say it, but I've never thought about it, that, that tournaments, I mean, especially football tournaments, I suppose, are based still they still have quite strong elements on the tournaments of the Middle Ages, the jousting tournaments, like the heraldry of the badges on the football shirts and then sort of almost being seen as proxy national conflicts, that kind of thing. Yes, sort of occurred to me suddenly that these things are related in, in, in some kind of distant way and that when we associate sport with modernity too much with the kind of post-industrial revolution um, and post-imperial stuff or, or high imperial stuff sometimes, uh, we forget that actually these things have much longer origins. And I kind of try to make the case that the medieval tournament has the origins in it of international sport. And by that, I particularly mean not what normally comes to mind when you talk about a medieval tournament, which is one night against another in a tilting yard in a joust but what was called the melee a, a, basically a kind of a battle in all but uh, reality where they had blunted weapons and they went at each other hammer and tongs and tried to capture the most important people on the other side that was how you sort of won the match but yes they were international contests and they they went on in the 13th century much to the disgust of the church for example and sometimes of some kings who thought they were probably uh, easy ways of concealing getting together for a rebellion, which I think was probably true. Did you find, David, evidence of, of sports that 
at some point, you know, were enormously successful and have just died out in Britain? I didn't have chapters on them, but there are examples. I mean, in not quite dead, but greyhound racing is quite a good example in a way. Early on, I talk about the greyhound coursing champion called Master McGrath, after whom there's a little terrace of houses I came across in street in Walthamstow and I just found that very strange that this little dog from Northern Ireland had achieved this great thing of winning the Waterloo Cup several times and his owner Lord Lurgan had ended up constructing some houses in Walthamstow with the money but greyhound racing was fantastically popular and it was so popular uh, when the sort of American version of it was adopted in Britain, which is the one with the electric hair that runs round. It became so popular that they entrepreneurs came up with kind of alternatives, of which my favourite was in Harringay, North London. There was a stadium there and they ran cheetahs. Oh, real ones. Yes, except it didn't really work. Because although cheetahs are famously very, very, very fast, they're also cats, you know. Yes, so they won't they do want what you want. They don't want you to yeah. do <laughs> and, and so people would turn up to see the fabulous cheetahs who were going to run the socks off anything, and they would just sort of lie around preening themselves. <laughs> Brilliant. So, um, Waiting for cheetah much. dreamies. I'm so impressed by the cheetahs. <laughs> I think about the greyhound racing, of course, that so many greyhounds and racing dogs come from Ireland, there was one in my own family. Tina Carrig Jane wasn't very good. Gosh, I was about to say, well, we've all heard of her. No, Tina Carrig Jane did not, so. did not bring wealth into okay. family coffers, I have to say. One of those dogs that sort of ran the wrong way, I think. But obviously horse racing is, is the same, isn't it? You know, you don't, with Absolutely. any huge horse race meeting, you will try to you know, place a bet on a horse from Willie Mullins yard for example which is just up the up the road from where I'm sitting so it is it is you know there is a, I suppose bleed between England and Ireland in that in that scenario yes yes absolutely and and um, Master McGrath I was talking about the Dubliners sing a, a song about him they talk about Master McGrath as having had the only victory on English soil of any Irishman which I think is a bit of an exaggeration but um there certainly is that. And commentary on uh, Master McGraw at the time that it happened, um, the dog was brought to meet Queen Victoria and she wrote about him in her, her diary and so on. The commentary was that, you know, no Fenian would be seen at this well, the Waterloo Cup meeting. Um, whereas, in fact, in his sort of afterlife, he's very much been taken up by a kind of nationalist sentiment. So... It's quite interesting the way that sport gets gets used in these different in these different ways across political divides. Mm. I was really interested in about the what you said about cycling for that, that how political cycling has always been on both sides, and how sort of radical it was. And you make the case that it still is, and you're calling Chris Boardman a revolutionary still these days. Yes, yeah, I think cycling's quite fascinating. I think listeners or readers wouldn't necessarily be surprised to be told that you can associate cycling with left-wing or radical politics quite far back and I talk about the clarion clubs that were early socialist club that took up cycling very uh, powerfully to spread their socialist message but before that the great kind of cycling political movement was the primrose cycling club which was an arm of the Primrose League, which was a conservative movement of which had something like a million members. It was extraordinarily popular briefly um, around the turn of the century. And women took a very powerful role in that, spreading the conservative message by by. So yes, it's been political and, and continues to be. And I think someone like Chris Boardman took up cycling itself as a kind of political statement uh, beyond his great achievements just as a sporting cyclist and he makes a very good case that cycling is good for us cycling is a solution to quite a lot of our problems in our cities with our health um, with pollution with all sorts of things if we 
persuaded people that cycling is not a threat to the, the car driver, but you know, a, a good alternative or a better alternative in many a case, we'd be much happier as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very compelling case. And as you say, it's surprising because I would have said if it had an affiliation cycling, it would have been with the left. But as you say, it was it went further back to that. And the ladies of the the Premier's League, who I was delighted to learn the ladies early cyclists wore what's it called rational dress yes to wear rational dress when you're on a bike yes you know like Alex? Yes. yes stop wearing your long skirts and your corsets but wear rational don't dress. wear irrational dress and it's funny this <laughs> yes. is reminding me of that wonderful book we talked about about the lady the lady skiers yes and the mountaineers and the yep. mountaineers yep. having to having to basically saying you know what you can't climb up Kilimanjaro in a long skirt and, and high heel boots. Yeah. You just can't. I mean, where do you think we are now, David? I'm wondering, because sport is always a hot potato, isn't it, socially and politically? Yes. And we don't see any signs of that stopping, I don't think. No, it's I mean, it's obviously a kind of international hot potato, especially mm. when you think about. Uh, football but to some extent as well with the Olympic movement we in this country have decided to go down a route where we have foreign ownership of our biggest football clubs and you can get pretty depressed about the state of our national game in that it's not just a sort of anti-foreign thing it's that quite um, dubious regimes are involved with some of our football teams. I'm not going to name any in order not to get sued. But uh, as well as that, you might think that the game has sort of been taken away from the people who would most likely want to see it. I would argue there is still life in the old dog, not only in the lower followings of lower leagues, which is still pretty popular. My elder son is a Yeovil Town fan among other things, and, and, and what's known as a ground hopper, goes to lots of different grounds of very, very small grounds. And everywhere you go, there is mad, keen enthusiasm for the smallest clubs you can imagine. So that still lives on. And also, I've, it does come into my book, the attempt to steamroller the English Premier League into a Super League, a European Super League, it hasn't gone away, but the attempt to do so was pretty much thwarted by a fan revolt against it. The clubs gang together, for those who don't know, big clubs of Europe gang together to have a supranational league and put together this plan. And the fans, certainly in, in, in Britain, did not like it and came out and said so. It had been tried, it was tried during COVID at a time when it was difficult to come out and protest and so on, but people did and the clubs backed down. I'm sure that's not going to be the end of that story, but it does prove that even now the game has become so monetized, internationalized, um, sanitized in lots of ways there is still that sense that it does belong to the people, even in Britain, where so much of it seems to be um, removed from us. Well, I think we're going to have to leave football in the hands of the people for now, because you also write about rugby and cricket and horse racing as well, don't you? So there's, and tennis and as tennis well. And yeah, tennis and golf. And golf, yep, something, something for everyone. And... David, thank you so much for talking to us about your book today. Also, some Arsenal, little bit of Arsenal. There's a little bit, isn't there, David? There's a tiny bit, but not too much. Because things are going quite well at the moment with some blips. That's all. That's all we'll say, perhaps. <laughs> exactly. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, as we say every single season. <laughs> thank you very much for t- for telling us about about sport and about your new book. Thank you, Andrews.
that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Toby Lishtig and David Horsepool. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.